Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. Scripture reading this morning is going to be Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. If you're using one of the blue uh, church Bibles, you will find these verses beginning on page 1005. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. This is the very Word of God. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim and glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood." which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That is the reading of God's Word. Let us pray and ask for his blessing upon the preaching of His Word here this morning. Father, we come before You now, humbly asking for Your grace, humbly asking that according to Your promise, You would cause Your Word to bear fruit in our lives. Father, give us ears to hear it, and a heart to love it, and a a mind to receive it, that we might bring forth its fruit in our lives to the praise of Your glory. This we ask in Jesus' name, and for His name's sake. Amen. I don't remember the exact year, but when I was a kid, probably sometime when I was in middle school, Coke decided that they were going to update their recipe. They were going to release a a new and improved version of Coca-Cola. Let's just say it didn't go very well. The crowd, or the public, 
didn't like the, the change, and it wasn't too long before Coke decided they needed to resume selling old Coke, now called Coke Classic, alongside what they called New Coke. And not too long after that, New Coke just simply disappeared, and all that was left was Coke Classic, once again simply called Coke. It, it's an illustration of the fact that new and improved is not always better. Companies today feel the need to, to always be updating, to always be innovating, and yet, often, those who use the product prefer the old version. And when the new comes out, they wish they could go back to the old. Well, that is something like what the Hebrews were being tempted to do. They were being tempted to, to go back to the old we were told in, in chapter 8 that, that Jesus is the mediator of a new and better covenant. And yet, the Hebrews who received this letter were being tempted to, to go back to the old covenant as if it were truly better. Well, here in, in chapter 9, the author wants us to see that that is not a possibility. In fact, he told us right at the end of, of chapter 8 that that old covenant ha has not only been replaced with the new, but the old is now obsolete. Look again at verse 13 of chapter 8. He says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The old covenant is obsolete. The old covenant is vanishing away. There is no going back. The author wants the Hebrews to see that, that there's no possibility of returning to the old because it has been replaced by something better. In fact, they ought not want to want to go back to the old because what is new is so much better. And so what we need to see this morning, we need to see first why the Old Covenant is obsolete, why it needed to be replaced, and why what replaced it is so much better. So let's, let's begin with why the Old Covenant is obsolete. Notice what he says in verse 1. It's not that the Old Covenant was, was entirely worthless. It's not that the Old Covenant was, was devoid of, of any value. He, he says the Old Covenant had regulations for worship, and it had an earthly place of, of holiness. There was a way in which we could approach God in the Old Covenant. There was a, a place where we could, we could be in His presence. There were regulations for worship, and there was a, a place of, of holiness. In fact, as you, as you feel Him describe the Old Testament tabernacle, you can, you can sense sort of His awe and His appreciation. Notice what He writes. He says, The tent was prepared, uh, the first section of which there was the lampstand and the, the table of the bread of the presence. It's called the most holy place. And as he goes on describing this, he, you can hear him sort of uh, groan a little bit as he says, but we can't speak about these things now in detail. He said, I loved that old tabernacle. I stand in awe of, of the temple. It was glorious and beautiful in its own right. The old was not replaced because it was worthless or, or without any value whatsoever. Now I have to tell you that there are at least two difficulties in the author's description of the Old Testament tabernacle that, that modern critics like to pounce on. In verse 4, he, he describes the most holy place as having the golden altar of incense. 
And also in verse 4, he says that the Ark of the Covenant contained not only the two tablets of the covenant, but also the, the golden urn of manna and Aaron's staff, which budded. Now the first statement is problematic because the golden altar of incense wasn't actually in the most holy place. If you're familiar with the, the setup of the, the tabernacle, the only thing, the only piece of furniture that was in the most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant. In the holy place, the, the first section of the tabernacle, there were three pieces of furniture. There was the lampstand, there was the, the table with the, the bread of the presence, and there was the altar of incense. And so it is problematic that the author tells us that the altar of incense was belonged to the most holy place. It's also problematic when he says that the Ark of the Covenant contained not only the, the tablets of the covenant, but also the urn of manna and Aaron's staff. Because when Solomon brought the Ark into the temple, we are told explicitly that the only thing that was in the Ark were the two tablets of the covenant. And so both of these statements seem to suggest that the author might not know what he's talking about. That he might not be all that familiar with the, the Old Testament tabernacle or with the Old Testament temple. That he, he got his facts wrong. And you can imagine the fun that modern critics have with such errors. However, I would suggest to you they're not really errors. In fact, I would suggest to you that the way that the author speaks doesn't show us that he is ignorant of the tabernacle, but actually just the opposite. It shows us that he is intimately aware of the way that the tabernacle was set up. Because even in the Old Testament, the altar, which was in the holy place, not the most holy place, is nevertheless described as belonging to the most holy place. It was placed right in front of the veil, and it was, it was there as sort of the gatekeeper into the most holy place. So that the, the incense that was burned could, could permeate the, the most holy section. And in 1 Kings, it is described specifically, using almost the same language, as belonging to the inner sanctuary. Yes, it was in the holy place, but it belonged to the most holy place. Which is exactly what the author says here. That the altar, that the most holy place was having the altar. And so really, there's, there's no problem. That's exactly the way we would expect someone who wasn't just vaguely aware, but who was intimately aware of the setup of the tabernacle. That's exactly the way that we would expect him to describe it. And, and a similar explanation is, is involved with the second difficulty that the critics point out. We are told uh, in the book of, of Exodus and in, in the Pentateuch that, that the urn of the manna and the, uh, the ark uh, the, um, the staff that was budded, they were kept with the ark. And we can imagine quite easily that, that when the ark was moved, that they were stored in the ark. In fact, the language that is used in, in 1 Kings to tell us that, that the only thing in the ark was the two tablets of the covenant is phrased in such a way as to suggest that previously there had been other things, but now the only thing that remained were the two tablets of the covenant. And so while the critics like to suggest that the author didn't know the details or that he, that he got his details wrong, and you'll, you'll see them making much of these supposed errors, 
I want you to know that it is much more likely that his language reflects one who is intimately aware. And not only aware, but who deeply loves and appreciates the tabernacle. And that is significant. You have to understand that the author is not saying to the Hebrews, good riddance. He's not saying that, that, well, that was such a waste of gold anyway. He's not suggesting that it was of no value whatsoever. He loved the tabernacle. He loved the temple. He, He was deeply appreciative of the old regulations of the old covenant. He's not speaking as one who despised these things, but as one who knew them well and loved them deeply. And yet, despite all of his appreciation for the tabernacle and for the the furniture that was there and for the regulations that it, it gave us for our worship, despite all of that, At the same time, he knows, and he wants the Hebrews to know, and he he wants us to know this morning that it is good that those things are no more. It is good that the old has been replaced. Why? Why is it good that the Old Testament tabernacle is no longer the place of worship? Why is it good that those old regulations have been set aside? Well, The author tells us that it is good that all of that has been replaced, that all of that has become obsolete. It is good that that has been set aside because all of that, the old regulations and the, the, the building itself, all pointed to separation. They all pointed to the fact that the way was not yet open. Look again at verse 6. He tells us that the priests go regularly into the the first section of the tabernacle. Now already in our our study of of Hebrews, we have seen the, the significance of the fact that the priests had to go regularly, that they had to perform these sacrifices over and over and over again. We we saw that the, the repetition of the sacrifice highlighted their weakness. It highlighted that they were truly ineffectual, that they, they couldn't actually accomplish what they were trying to do. But here the author has a different point. His point is not simply that the the Priests repeated these sacrifices over and over and over again, but rather his point is that they did so only in the outer section. The priests go regularly into the outer section, but they go no further. Only the high priest, and only once a year, and only with freshly spilt blood, do they go into the most holy place. The language highlights the the limited, the the partial access to God that was available through the Old Covenant. Only the high priest, only once a year, and only with freshly spilled blood could he enter into the very presence of of God. Yes, God was in their midst, but he was still separated from them. The veil still stood, reminding them always and perpetually that the way was not yet opened. In fact, this is exactly what the author says. 
He says, by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place, into God's very throne room, was not yet open as long as that tent stood. As long as the tent stood, the way was not yet opened. But why? Why Why couldn't the regulations of the Old Covenant open the way for us to enter into God's presence? He tells us in verse 9 that the old regulations could not open the way into God's presence because the gifts and the sacrifice that were offered under the Old Covenant could not perfect the conscience of the worshiper. They were merely external. They were merely Symbolic. They, they, they purified the body, but they could not touch the heart of the worshiper. They could not give the worshiper a clean conscience. Think about what that means. We know what it is to have a bad conscience. We, we know what it is to have a, a defiled conscience. A, a bad conscience is a conscience that is aware of our guilt. It doesn't mean that it's, it has guilty feelings. We use that language sometimes today, and, and we often mean that a person feels guilty when they shouldn't. In fact, today, it's, it's most common just to, to tell people to, to not feel guilty. That's the way that we, we deal with our guilt. You need to be nice to yourself. You need to affirm yourself. You need to say nice things about yourself. You need to deal with your guilt by denying its veracity. But a bad conscience won't let us do that. A bad conscience doesn't only feel guilty, it knows itself to be guilty. It knows that it is guilty of of sin. And we come to have a bad conscience through sin. Either sins of omission or sins of of commission. We, We come to have a bad conscience by doing those things that we ought not to do or by not doing those things that we are called to do. We we come to have a bad conscience when we, we do those things that bring harm to our neighbor or we leave undone those things that would bless our neighbor. We know ourselves to be guilty. And being guilty, we have a bad conscience. And a person with a bad conscience cannot enjoy communion or or fellowship with God. We know this to be true in our horizontal human relationships, do we not? A husband who has cheated on his wife cannot simply maintain fellowship with her. The relationship is broken. A friend whom you have betrayed or or slandered in word or, or deed... You cannot just continue to to have fellowship with Him. You you may put on the face, you may go through the motions, but your hearts are separated. We know this to be true in our human relationships, that that sin breaks fellowship, that sin breaks communion. It, It cuts us off from one another. How much more so does our sin separate us from the Holy God? Think of Isaiah coming into the very presence of God in Isaiah chapter 6. He is not thrilled to be there. He's come into the presence of a consuming fire. He's he's come into the presence of the Holy One of Israel. And he cries out, Woe is me, I am undone. For he knows he is not fit for fellowship with a holy God. 
He knows that he cannot but be destroyed in his presence because he is unclean. Because he has a bad conscience. He cannot enjoy fellowship with God. And therefore, if we are to be restored to relationship with the Lord God Almighty, if we are to be brought back into fellowship with Him, then it is necessary that our conscience be cleansed. It is necessary that, that, our, that our conscience be purified and renewed. Otherwise, relationship with God coming into His presence is a death sentence. Woe is the person who stands in God's presence unclean. But this is something that the Old Covenant couldn't offer. The tabernacle, with all of its regulations for worship, with all of its glory, it could not offer true cleansing. The sacrifice of calves and, and goats was, was merely a shadow of what was needed. The, the cleansing was, was merely symbolic, and thus the old system could never open the way into God's presence. And that's what the author of Hebrews wants his readers to see. It's what he wants us to see this morning. Why? Why would they want to go back to an old covenant that was merely provisional and is now obsolete? Why would they want to go back to that which was but a shadow of what was needed? Why would they want to go back to a covenant that did not offer true reconciliation with God? Why would they want to go back to that which is obsolete? Especially when that which it pointed to is now here. Look again at verse 11. We're told that when Christ appeared, everything changed. The author says, He is the high priest of the good things that have now come. Last Sunday, we, we saw that Christ entered into the true tent, the, the greater and more perfect tent, not the, the earthly shadow, not the earthly tabernacle, but He entered into the heavenly throne room of God. And there, by the power of the Spirit, He offered not the blood of bulls and goats, but His own precious blood shed upon Calvary. And thereby, by offering up His own blood, He secured for us an eternal Redemption. His blood offered in the eternal spirit does what the blood of the bulls and the goats could never do. It purifies the conscience from dead works. Think about that. What are, what are dead works? Dead works are those works that lead to death. They are, are the works that, that Paul describes in, in Romans chapter 6 when he says you know, that those things that you used to do, those things of which you are now ashamed, they lead only to death. These are the works that, that give us a bad conscience, the, the works of, of sin, the works of, of, of hate against our neighbor, the works of malice, the very types of sins that we have confessed even this morning that we are guilty of. And the author wants us to see that it is from these dead works that we are cleansed by the blood 
of Christ. And having been cleansed, we are thereby restored to the service of the living God. Now note that phrase. We're going to come back to that next week. That's going to be our focus next week. But just, but just notice it this morning. Having been cleansed from dead works, we are restored to the service of the living God. Paul says that we have been set free to become the slaves of our King. That is, that is a, a mind-bending idea. We are free to be slaves. We have been cleansed to, to be restored to, to service. God has a purpose in saving us. He has, he has saved us back into the life for which we were originally created. That, that life with which He blessed us in the beginning when He put us in the garden and told us to work. We have been saved to good works. We have been restored to the life for which we were created. But I want, I want you to see this morning is that we have been restored to that life through Jesus' blood. Only by His blood have we been redeemed. Not with perishable things such as silver and gold. Not with anything in this creation. Not with the blood of bulls and goats. But with the precious blood of Jesus, we have been cleansed. It's the same thing that we saw in, in Romans chapter 3, the, the passage that Sam used for the assurance of pardon this morning. He, he tells us in those verses that under the Old Covenant, sins were left unpunished. He said he had passed over former sins. He had, he had not actually dealt with them. Because the reality is that the sacrifices of the Old Covenant couldn't deal with our guilt. They couldn't deal with our sins. They were a shadow of what was needed, but they were not the real thing. But now, through Christ's blood... Our guilt, your guilt, it has been dealt with definitively. It has been dealt with properly. And in Him, by His blood, we now have a clean conscience. We have been purified. And in Him, by His blood, we now have peace with God. That is the wonder of the new covenant. Don't let your familiarity with this language blind you to, to the reality of what is going on here. This is the wonder of the new. This is the reason that we can never go back. This is the reason why we should never want to go back. And so let me ask you, do you know what it is to have a bad conscience? Do you know what it is to be painfully aware of your own guilt? Do you know what it is to, to know yourself to be justly deserving of His wrath? Have you seen your sins and, and seen the damage that your sins have done to those who, who God has woven into the fabric of your life? Have you seen the ways that you have failed those whom God called you to, to protect and to encourage. Do you know what it is to have a bad conscience? I hope that you do. I, I hope that, that you know what it is to know yourself to be a sinner. 
But more than that, I hope that you have come to realize the futility of seeking to cleanse yourself. I hope you know painfully that there is nothing that you can offer to God for your cleansing. Now I suspect that there is no one here this morning who was tempted like the Hebrews to to go back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. That's not really a live option for us. It's not something that we we contemplate. We don't think about going back to to the, the blood of bulls and goats for our cleansing. But each and every one of us has those gifts and sacrifices of of created things that we are tempted to offer to God in the hopes of obtaining a clear conscience. In the hopes of somehow dealing with our guilt. For some of us, it is is acts of suffering. Whether that be self-loathing or or, or submitting to to some just vile circumstance. We, We think if we suffer enough, then maybe we can earn a clean conscience from God. Others of us try to to earn a clean conscience by by doing good things, by by sacrificing for the the sake of, of others. But one way or the other, we try to offer to God gifts and sacrifices of created things, of perishable things, thinking that we can somehow cleanse our own conscience, thinking that somehow we can somehow deal with our guilt, thinking that somehow we can reconcile ourselves to God. And the author of Hebrews wants you to see this morning, it will not work. Earthly sacrifices are not sufficient. You can never deal with your guilt problem. You will never be able to do enough. You will never be able to suffer enough to cleanse your own conscience before God. As Paul says in Ephesians, you are in yourself without hope. And it is only when we see the reality of our condition in ourselves as utterly hopeless that we are ready to hear the good news. Because it is in our utter hopelessness that Christ comes to us. It is in our utter hopelessness that that He offers us the gift that we could never purchase for ourselves. It is in our utter hopelessness that He says, My blood is enough. My blood can cleanse your conscience. It cannot be cleansed with perishable things such as silver and gold. It cannot be cleansed with your own finite suffering. It cannot be cleansed with your own limited good works. But I have bought your redemption with my own precious blood shed on Calvary. And the question that we must face this morning is simply this. Do we believe it? Do we believe that Jesus' blood is enough to purify our conscience? Do we believe that His blood can fit us in all our sin? That His blood can fit us for sweet fellowship with the Holy One of Israel? Do you believe it this morning? Do you believe that His blood is enough? Do you believe that your cleansing has been accomplished? Or do you still feel disqualified? 
do you still feel unclean? I suspect that every one of us here this morning wrestles with that feeling of being unclean. We, we wrestle with, with the, the feeling of being disqualified. We, we wrestle with believing it. And so let us let the Holy Spirit preach this gospel to us this morning. This morning the Holy Spirit wants you to see there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners like you plunged beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. The blood of Christ is enough. Hear it again from Paul's letter to the Romans. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus by His blood received by faith alone. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we now have peace with God. We have been reconciled. We have been restored. We have been brought into His presence. Even now in this room, far less glorious than the tabernacle, we sit in the presence of the Lord God Almighty. And we do so without being undone. Because our conscience has been cleansed by the precious blood of Christ. And in Him there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And because this is true of the new covenant in His blood, because this is the heartbeat of the gospel, because in Him we can have a pure conscience and perfect fellowship with our King, that is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Let us believe it together. Father God, we do rejoice in this gospel. We thank You for the wonder of Your grace. We thank You that when we could do nothing, You did everything through Your Son, by Your Spirit, that we who were justly deserving of wrath and curse might instead know Your blessing and life. Father God, allow this Gospel to dwell richly in us this morning. Allow it to fill us to overflowing that we might bring forth its fruit in our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.